From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Artificial intelligence is suddenly a challenging policy area that's moving towards centre stage in terms of public and government attention. Some enthusiasts emphasise AI's immense potential, but other people are terrified the technology might mean humans can be dangerously outsmarted. On the jobs front, the technology has the potential to open up employment opportunities, but it also can smash vast numbers of jobs. The Albanese government has begun consultations as it formulates a policy for seeking to ensure AI technology is both safe and responsible. Ed Husick is Minister for Industry and Science with a long interest in technology and he's overseeing the AI policy development process. He joins us today to talk about the exciting new frontier we can't yet see right over the horizon. Ed Husick, do you think worries about artificial intelligence are akin to fears about the advent of computers a few years ago or other advances over decades and indeed centuries about technology? Or is this technology actually somewhat different? I think there are two ways to answer that. I think there's been this sort of platform of concern that's stretched across decades and generations I often remark when it comes to automation, the big shifts we saw, the impact of automation on employment occurred in the 50s and 60s around manufacturing and agriculture and the changes in the way that work was performed in those areas. And then obviously from there, you you saw governments here and overseas start to think about the impact of computers and technology on employment. And I think it was Richard Nixon who was um, commissioning some of that work in the US at that point in time. And so that's always been there. There's always been a concern about what technology will do, not just in terms of jobs, but is it changing the way we live our lives, the quality of our lives, the quality of interaction. But the second point coming to the heart of your question is, I think there's been a big jump in people's awareness about the capability of um, certain technologies around, particularly around artificial intelligence and the sort of leaps we've seen in uh, generative AI that's been, you know, being developed over the years. I mean, ChatGPT has been around for some time, but the big leap came in November when you had the public release of their latest version and everyone could see what it would do and started to think about what it might might do further into the future. Now, you believe that uh, artificial intelligence can deliver, and I quote, huge economic and social dividends. Hmm. What are these dividends? In the economic realm, it's been estimated that it could add uh, quite, I, I think there's some forecasting that uh, automation, particularly around AI, could potentially add up to $4 trillion to our economy by the early 2030s. But I look at it as the way in which it could change, uh, you know, particularly in terms of health. I've cited elsewhere what it's been able to do, particularly through the course of the pandemic, in being able to fast track the development of vaccines that usually would have taken years and we didn't have the luxury of that time, uh, given what we were confronting through the pandemic. I, I was out uh, at a firm today that is pairing AI and robotics, uh, they're called Akin, in Redfern here in Sydney, and they're using that in an NDIS environment to help people with a disability, 
be able to improve the quality of their home by have home-based care, but using a robotic and AI solution to help with the uh, care arrangements that they've got. So there are some other areas, for example, the use of AI to develop personalised education, for instance. We've been all went through school with a very standardised curricula that didn't pay necessary regard to our own capabilities, but AI being able to draw off what where you are at, where your child is at in their development and then be able to shape education and tailor it to individuals. I mean, I think there are huge uh, social benefits when we think about the, the application of AI for good. But again, we've got to get the balance right. And I think people are clearly concerned about some of the things that they worry about, about how the technology has got it going and we need to attend to that. This week, there's been a lot of talk uh, about the need for Australia to uh, really put its foot on the accelerator in terms of productivity, given our economic situation. Mm. Do you think that AI can be uh, a real booster here? I think it's got the potential, Michelle, but uh, it's not all... I often urge, and I'll, I'll speak with industry and unions and others in the community... This is not about just plugging in a bit of technology, flicking the switch on and thinking that everything will be sorted out. It does require the pairing of human capacity, the capacity of people and their skills with the technology to get the outcomes we want and to think about how the technology will be used. I think you referenced productivity and some of the work of the Productivity Commission has highlighted we have a challenge within layers of management to understand, to have an awareness about what technology is capable of to then use that awareness to make investment decisions. And then when they've made those decisions, how to integrate technology in a way that is not hugely or unnecessarily disruptive. And I think we've got to get our heads around that as a country too, because there are low levels of awareness. If we get it right, there is a potential for huge benefit. But I I am very much alive to this, this aspect that I've just referenced, where we've got to get people thinking about the technology early on so they can get the most out of it in a way that benefits many, not a few. The government's now consulting on a framework of regulations for AI. Mm -hmm. Now, what are we looking at here? And, for example, what's been done elsewhere in the EU, for instance, and what aspects of that might be adopted here? So we kicked this off, we we launched the discussion paper last week to facilitate the safe and responsible use of of AI in the country. So we launched that discussion paper on the 1st of June. We've given eight weeks for people to have their say. It reflects, I think, a community mood, or or we've certainly detected clearly in the minds of many, well, where's the technology going? And I think in particular, people are concerned, Michelle, about, you know, has the technology got an ability to get ahead of itself to do things beyond human control and we've got to deal with that concern respect that concern and I think the other thing Michelle too is I think when it comes to technology at a time where trust in institutions is low you know it is a challenge to build trust in technology so that people are happy to see it be used in different ways having said that technology is sitting in the background AI is being used in ways we may not necessarily appreciate right now and we've been able to live with it but We want a risk-based approach in terms of the regulatory framework. We've got probably a dozen laws that currently exist where they have a mind to the impact of AI and and managing that. But we've got to modernise that regulatory framework and looking at other countries, 
you, know, you see some work in the EU and they uh, are probably a bit forward leaning in terms of their regulation and wanting to get right at the ground level when the technology is being developed. Um, other countries, the US generally has got more of a philosophy similar to the Singaporeans of a much more uh, voluntary or, or um, self-regulatory uh, approach. Uh, though I think there's probably a change, Michelle, in the US thinking and I, they're, they're probably giving regard to whether or not they have to have something a bit more formalised in the legislative response. The Canadians are thinking through it and we outlined some of these in our discussion paper. Um, from our point of view, I think something that balances out the risk while not throttling the technology in a way that we limit our ability to get the benefit, we've got to get that balance right. Can you give some specific examples here of uh, forward-looking regimes leaning into the issue or, or those that are more relaxed? Probably a bit early for me to to reflect on that and apply it in an Australian context, but clearly... Um, Just what's being done internationally. Well, well, I mean, again, if you look at the in the EU and they're sort of working on a development of an AI Act there, I mean, you've seen some countries in their jurisdiction move quickly to ban generative AI like ChatGPT and they put a ban on it that they just really like lifted back in late April as they start to think, okay, when the AI is being developed, what are the criteria that are being used um, as much as you can possibly get under the you know, lift the bonnet and look into the way that the technology is operating. What are the what are the things that are being factored in by developers as to how the technology, what are the things they want to get out of the technology and have they considered uh, the implication or consequences of the technology? Have they thought through the way it'll work and who might be affected in a negative way? And so the EU are leaning heavily into that, that type of legislative, uh, very risk-based approach uh, to legislation, but again, that's them. There'll be experts that can talk about their their approach, but we are trying to keep an open mind and invite people to put their submissions about how they think in the Australian context the laws should manage some of the more recent uh, accelerated developments. Some critics fear that uh, AI could promote the spread of disinformation, mm. misinformation. Mm. What are your concerns here or, or do you think that's overblown? No, I, I think that's a genuine concern that should be respected. I think the use of, in some instances, what they've referred to as deep fakes, the way in which it might look like you, you'll see something on a computer screen, on a phone or a TV and think this is a person that's speaking to you doing something or saying something horrible uh, or out of line, and it turns out it's not. It's been a man manipulation of an image to make it look like that person. There have been examples of that uh, occur where it may influence people's thinking or it may trigger a response out of government or authorities or create a, a climate uh, that is forcing decisions to be made by governments that, that clearly it's just wrong, it's it's error, it's been manipulated. We can't afford uh, to see that happen. I mean, we've seen technology already being used in that way through 16, through the use of social media in the 16 presidential election. And we have thought, and we've had, you know, for example, the eSafety Commissioner in Australia try to work with platforms to, to clamp down on that. And I think we're AI might be used to promote disinformation. We will probably need to think about how we modernise or shape up our regulatory frameworks to avoid that, to tackle that and to give people 
confidence and comfort that what they're seeing is legitimate and that it's not provoking decisions made off a false or, or erroneous way. It's very hard, though, isn't it, given the speed of things? I heard someone speaking today about the the risk of uh, misinformation being thrown up through AI mm. a day before an election. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you react quickly enough? How do you have a regulatory framework then that can prevent this or deal with it when it occurs? I, I think that is a, a live issue as well. I think it's something that governments are are clearly trying to grapple with, but we've got some, we have made headway, there is some headway that's been made on that. And my colleague's portfolio, uh, Michelle Rowland, who's the Minister for Communications, again, going back to the eSafety Commission, they're thinking through, through some of that. But it won't be a case, just because we're going through this process now of uh, consultation on uh, the regulatory frameworks around AI, this won't be the end of it. There will be a requirement on governments to be agile and nimble enough to keep pace with technology. Uh, I would just emphasize to your listeners that if you look at what's happened with ChatGPT, that latest version that came out in November, we saw all the talk and all the the sort of issues that have been raised in the public arena around that, we've in about six months said, okay, we've got to respond and deal with it. We tasked up our own National Science and Technology Council that's um, headed by the Prime Minister to develop a rapid response paper for us that got delivered to us a few months ago. We've then shaped up this discussion paper and we do want to move relatively quickly. And I think that's going to be a pressure on governments from here on in that they can't really sit sit on their hands uh, and just hope that things will sort themselves out. I think they're going to need to develop a capability within to respond much quicker. By the way, how much do you personally use ChatGPT and what do you think of it? So from my own perspective, I don't use it uh, from my own perspective. I've obviously taken an interest in it. Uh, I think people want to have the confidence that the work that I do is stuff that's generated from myself or the people that, that work with me. So, you know, you can have that. You can have that assurance. The listeners can have that assurance. But clearly I've been watching those developments and taken a keen interest as I have in technology for the entire time I've been a parliamentarian and well before uh, as well. And I've just always taken the view that getting an understanding and awareness of technology and how it can be used and recognising the light and shade when it comes to its application is really important. I think we have been too slow as a country. I think we probably could develop greater awareness across the parliament on the way that technology is advancing and developing and uh, be able to have that obviously influence the way we make decisions as well and improve the quality of decision making is, is really important. But people have said, Michelle, that they've gotten a value out of, I guess, using AI in many respects and it's the way it's been used elsewhere. You know, automation has been used to tackle the dirty, dull and dangerous work. Um, it's really focusing on routine work and where it can do effectively, if I can just put it in blunt terms, the grunt work, it still requires people to go in and finesse it because the quality of um, the output of generative AI, it does need people to look over it. There are issues around quality and even... OpenAI would probably admit that too. So it's not something that you can sort of take your hands off the wheel, as it were. You do need to engage, but it can get through the bulk of or the grunt of work in a way that might have chewed up people's time before. Well, of course, also, uh, as things advance, and they do so very quickly these days, Mm. it'll become more of a self-driving car, won't it? I think so. And I think there's this thing within us that we're always wanting to improve. And if there are issues 
or, or challenges that we have, the problem-solving nature that we have in many of us that we encourage uh, in people, um, there's always going to be pressure to keep refining technology. The thing with AI is that of itself, it, it tries to improve as well. The more data you provide, the more times it cycles through, it's always trying to improve and refine itself. So bringing together that tendency within us all with the inherent capabilities of the technology mean that it will keep developing. And while people may want to have a moratorium on the use of, of this technology, I don't think that necessarily will be helpful. And it's certainly um, the advice I've been getting from people, particularly out of our National Science and Technology Council, is that will probably be counterproductive because you do want to engage to better understand and have a, a response that is fit for purpose or, or will be a quality response. What's your impression of how it will disrupt the jobs market, both negatively and positively? I think uh, it's something I just referenced a few moments ago around it's targeting not so much blue collar and white collar. I think it's targeting routine elements of our jobs. So, yeah, the thing... For the moment. For the moment, yes. So uh, in, in terms of AI being able to process large amounts of data... Uh, way quicker than people can. That's the that's the muscle of AI. And when I mentioned a few moments ago about the way it was used to help fast track the development of the COVID vaccines that we have, it would have taken too long for human researchers to go through that data. So being able to process a lot of information quickly and accurately, I need to emphasize that, that's one of the strengths of AI. But what's happening with generative AI and what we're seeing with things like ChatGPT is it's a predictive form. It can be used not just in terms of analysing data, but, but predicting and using it in a way that um, is creative. Uh, and this is the big difference because where people thought AI was going, they thought it can do a lot of grunt work, but it's not really creative. Whereas now you're seeing music, art being generated by AI so it's proving a challenge. I think future generations of the technology will be challenging for people that thought that they would be relatively safe. So the routine, I think, is the sort of initial target and being able to deal with routine elements of our job. But I think future generations will test creativity as well uh, in ways that we, we probably don't appreciate right now. So do you think it will wipe out more jobs than it will create or open the way up for? I'm, I'm careful about those predictions and sometimes uh, there have been uh, reports that have been pumped out in years past that have suggested that uh, automation, the use of modern technology will wipe out a lot of work. But the, the truism is that technology creates, you know, it creates work as much as it impacts on current jobs. In some of the work that I'm doing as a minister, Michelle, where I've, you know, for example, commissioned work on the development of a national robotics strategy, I've wanted the thinking to be around not just about the technology itself, but its application. So on the groups that I've brought together to guide the thinking on the development of those strategies, I'll have people with an ethics background. I'll have people who are thinking about workforce implications. And the big thing out of all that, Michelle, is I'm trying to encourage breadth of thinking and so that whatever we develop at the earliest point started to contemplate not just benefit, but implication and consequence and then, then how do we start shaping up a response to that because people are using they have you know and we go back to the start of our discussion we've had generations have to deal with technology 
that is designed to improve the way we work and it's had impact on jobs. But people have always sought to make their jobs easier using technology. And we've just, as long as we've got a clear-eyed assessment and we're thinking ahead about impact, I think we're in a better spot. And what about uh, integrating it into our education system? Should Mm. kids be taught about it uh, at high school or should it wait for university courses? Uh, So I guess there's two elements to your question. The the first is, should should the technology be used by students? Like, should they be using ChatGPT to help them with their essays? And I think there's a whole body of work now that's being done. There's an inquiry that's been kicked off within the federal parliamentary realm as a result of a reference made by the federal education minister, Jason Clare. There's some work being done as to how we should think about the use of generative AI by students. And there's been a concern in times past about the use of technology to cheat. And so educational institutions have been cracking down on that. But can can AI be used in the ways that I mentioned, for example, in personalising the way in which we are taught to take into account what our skills and capabilities are and then work out how to build and develop and improve those capabilities, not just for young people, but also I see career transition, benefiting from that retraining and having personalised training that suits individuals. I think there's, you know, there is a case to be said about using AI in those instances where people will see the value and benefit instead of being forced to just conform to a one-size-fits-all approach to education and training. Now, if we get our heads right on this and the approach right, I think it can benefit. But we've, again... It's all about not evangelising and not catastrophizing. It's about getting that balance right. Now, let's turn to talk about energy. And, of course, uh, because mm-hmm. your portfolio takes in manufacturing, you take a, a big uh, role in policy in this area. Last year, in the face of rising energy prices, mm-hmm. you called the gas companies tone deaf mm-hmm. and greedy. Mm-hmm. Are you still as critical of them? I mean, my comments were absolutely right at that point in time. And I think when you look at the profit results that they were recording and announcing to their shareholders and you saw the way they were scaling up pricing and the way that they were raking in profits at that point in time, I think I wasn't Robinson Crusoe in believing that. I would suspect there'd be a lot of people that were thinking the same. And I'd urge them privately to to rethink their approach to pricing and the impact that was having on the public and particularly manufacturing uh, in this country and they wouldn't listen um, and that's why we had to act. The, the type of concerns that manufacturers, Michelle, had at that point in time in 2022, they're, they're not necessarily uh, landing uh, in the, with the same frequency, but the concerns still exist. It's very hard for some manufacturers to secure contracts. Some manufacturers question whether or not they're getting the right price being put to them and whether or not the the cap is being respected. And uh, I I think it's still a challenge to get those contracts locked. And I think the suggestions that we would have gas shortages into the future, that some of them of the gas companies and producers have been making when they're exporting incredible volumes. I mean, this is not because the gas is running out of Australia. It's because we're effectively being conditioned to uh, by gas companies that, you know, if we take a strong regulatory stand that they'll respond by not investing in extraction, which is an extraordinary threat. 
and I'm watching it closely. And if it eventuates that way, I think the public will expect the government to act. So what more could the government do? We're working through right now a mandatory code of conduct. We're trying to secure supply commitments uh, out of the producers. We'll announce the detail of that in due course, not too far away. But uh, I think, you know, I, I will give credit. There has been engagement by producers on that and users, largely industry, have also engaged and they've been quite happy about the direction um, where things are going and we'll see where we have to go. But again, I think it's not going to be a case of uh, if the situation alters, if it deteriorates and if we are confronted with some of the challenges I referenced earlier or what we experienced in 2022, then it's going to be up to government to respond. I hope we don't get to that point and I hope the gas companies recognise that we take seriously uh, this issue because there is an expectation in the minds of the public an Australian resource should be priced for Australian conditions. I think the existence of these resources confers massive economic advantage to the country and I don't think we should be shy in expecting the application of that advantage in a way that benefits us all. The CAP system has recently been extended, I think, to 2025. Mm -hmm. But do you think that it's viable in the long run? Isn't it too distortionary? To be completely frank with you, I don't want the CAPs in place. I think the sooner we get them off, the better. Uh, If we have a better negotiating environment, Michelle, between the producers and the buyers, I think that would be better. But uh, we did need to take that emergency step and have that extraordinary event You know, I don't think there'd be too many times you or I could recall a parliament being brought back after it's risen for the calendar year, but we had to be brought back to get those laws through to be able to give certainty to people about the direction of prices and to calm things down. That's largely been achieved. And, you know, my my desire is that, you know, we can get rid of those caps as soon as possible. Uh, You know, in the foreseeable future, they'll have to stay, but the better outcome for us all is to have much better behaviour in the market, guided by a, um, a code of conduct that encourages uh, that, that type of behaviour to occur. Now, on the manufacturing front, Labor came in declaring it wanted to have Australia make more things and value-add more. Mm-hmm. Is the government still contemplating battery or EV manufacturing in Australia? I am... I've got the department working with um, uh, local firms on how we can shape up a national battery strategy to encourage manufacture. Uh, If you look at the entire value chain in this space, and we've been guided by advice out of the Future Battery Industries Cooperative Research Centre based in Perth, they've done a mighty lot of work showing what we could potentially do and also highlighting if we get it right, It could create tens of thousands of jobs and and billions in economic value for the nation. So we're working on that. And we do, particularly in areas where we're not currently present around battery manufacture, cell manufacture, uh, and looking at the potential for battery recycling as well. Uh, This will be big for the nation. And we've got a big challenge on grid firming. So having more batteries being used by residential, commercial, industrial customers, that's, a, I think, a priority for the nation. And having Australian-made batteries to do that will be good. And so we are looking at that. And we're working on that. And we're hoping to release the strategy in due course. 
Now, just finally, you're also the science minister. Do you think that the Australian education system is doing enough to produce really top quality scientists? And if it's not, what more should it be doing? I think if you look at the science and research talent in the country, it's well respected and regarded internationally. For the the size of our population and the talent that we have relative to that size, we're recognised as uh, significant contributors. And there's obviously a challenge. We could dedicate an entire other podcast on this around commercialisation and turning those ideas into a business reality. But the quality of our talent is significant. We do have uh, good people coming through the system. The heart of your question goes to the issue of scale. Is there enough? And that's a broader challenge about keeping people in science, technology, engineering and mathematic endeavour. I am looking at what in terms of not just from underrepresented groups, because we don't have enough women, we don't have enough people from different backgrounds in our STEM workforce. We've got to do more. And I've got a lot of work being headed up by Sally Williams, uh, who's heading up the um, diversity in STEM review that's currently underway to help guide government about what we can do to get more people in. So to your question, we could do more uh, for sure. I don't think that's in the absence of effort or desire by our education system, but you've got to have people willing who want to be in there and who want to stay in those workforces. And that, that is a challenge. Ed Husek, thank you very much for talking with us today. I think a lot of people will be watching carefully for that artificial intelligence policy coming out uh, in the future. That's all for today's Conversation Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosebeer. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.